Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Tearing Down Walls on Sunshine Live. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Every month, I join you from Berlin to bring young Germans and Americans together to talk about the things that matter to us. We want to find understanding between a new generation across the Atlantic, and we do it in partnership with an American college radio station, WNHU at the University of New Haven in Connecticut. On today's show, we're talking about LGBTQ rights and movements on both sides of the Atlantic. June and July are, of course, Pride Months in the U.S. and Germany, and there is a lot going on this summer. Not just parades in the street, but protests in the wake of anti-LGBTQ legislation passed by an EU member state, Hungary. Meanwhile, in the United States, the Human Rights Campaign reports that 2021 is the worst year in recent history for anti-LGBTQ legislation on the state level. The NGO tracked a record-breaking number of anti-LGBTQ bills enacted into law in state legislatures. On today's show, we'll hear from people who say it's clear that there is still a long way to go on the road to equality and acceptance. I feel like much of the trans representation we see in media is like misery representation. And code switching is just universal, like how I talk with my mom is different from when I talk to my friends or how I talk to my professors. I always hesitate to take it as a sign of progress that corporations are sporting rainbows. Here in Berlin, tens of thousands marched this month in the flagship Christopher Street Day Parade under the motto, Save Our Community, Save Your Pride. But there were also many local and issue-focused pride events across Germany and Berlin throughout July. Producer Monica Müller-Kroll stopped by a parade in Marzahn, a district in the eastern part of Berlin, and she joins me now to talk about it. Monica, this pride event was kind of a special one, right? Yes, because the district of Matsan has a large Russian-speaking community, so this pride has a heavy focus on them, but also shows solidarity with queer people in Russia and other Russian-speaking countries that have anti-LGBTQ legislation in place. And it's actually only the second time around that the Matsan pride took place, and I talked to some people who marched. My name is Alex. And I'm 45, and um, I'm here today with my husband, Mark, and we're from Hamburg. So Alex and his husband took the train down to Berlin. He felt it was important to be there and show support. Alex was actually born in Russia. Living in Germany, we can say that we have uh, reached a lot of uh, rights and um, good things, but still there's a lot to do yet. And I think this kind of event should uh, emphasize on this, um, this agenda that uh, many things have to be done yet. His husband Mark also jumped in the conversation when we started talking about LGBTQ rights in Germany compared to the U.S., Mark says he's been to the States three or four times. In the big cities, everything is okay. And uh, I have every time the meaning that uh, the United States are a little bit more, more further than Germany. But I have also context to people that live in the countryside in America. And I have many discussions with young people. And it is completely, um, for me, it's completely lost when you are gay in these areas. <laughs> This song caught my attention. It was performed by Masha, who told me she wrote it for the first Pride in Matsan last year. The chorus of the song translates to propaganda of love. Save 
Masha is 36 years old and moved to Berlin five years ago to marry her German girlfriend. I am a part of Quartira, the organization who is organizing the whole event already this second year. And yeah, Marzana is kind of the most Russian-speaking district in Berlin. And according to stereotypes, like it's the most homophobic one as well. That's why it's kind of obvious that this work should be done. Then I met Renate. She is 62 years old and has been living in Marzahn for the past 40 years. She says she came out of the closet rather late in life. She was married and had two kids and divorced in the 90s. Renate says she was very happy to see around 500 participants for the second Marzahn Pride. And then I talked to Elliot, who wants Germany to overturn its so-called Transsexuellengesetz. This law has been around for 40 years and dictates the arduous legal process for transgender people to change their name and gender status. Elliot hopes with the election coming up in late September, a new government will replace it with a self-determination law. I also spoke to Ignacio from Peru. He is an international student here in Berlin and he told me it's important to put a migrant face on pride in Berlin. That's why he came to Marzahn. He for the most part feels comfortable in Berlin, although he hasn't been spared from harassment. I'm obviously not saying like Germany is free of homophobia. Obviously it exists. I also hate that there's this narrative to pin homophobia down on Middle Eastern migrants because every time I remember being attacked for being gay, it was always like very German-looking white people. So I'm very, like, I think it's necessary to, from queer activism, dismantle that narrative of, oh, homophobia in Germany is a problem that they're bringing from Syria or from Iraq. That's not true. There's very homophobic Germans. That was reporting by Tearing Down Walls producer Monica at the local Pride Parade in Marzahn. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. I'm Sylvia Cunningham, and today we're talking about Pride Month and LGBTQ movements in the U.S. and Germany. To get a better understanding of how the LGBTQ histories of the two countries intersect, we're going to hear from Samuel Kluse Hunicke. He is a historian of modern Germany and an assistant professor of history at George Mason University in Virginia. Welcome to the program, Sam. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you've conducted extensive research on the history of LGBTQ rights and persecution in Germany. Berlin, of course, now has this reputation for being very LGBTQ friendly, but the time period that you focus on was another story. What was the key question you started your research with? The starting point for my research was to challenge one of the major assumptions, I think, that's out there about why Germany and Berlin are LGBTQ friendly places. I think a lot of times in the media, both popular media and in the news, there's this sort of arc that's drawn from the 1920s, from the Weimar era, which was famously sort of welcoming of queer minorities to the present day and sort of saying, well, it was a queer friendly place in the 1920s, ergo it is a queer friendly place today. And that arc, that sort of triumphal narrative arc, skips over 
the Nazi period, which was, of course, brutal to queer minorities. You have around 10,000 gay men who are sent to concentration camps. Lesbians are also persecuted in this time period. And then it also skips over the Cold War era, which is the period that my forthcoming book really focuses on. What findings about Germany's LGBTQ history surprise people the most? In many ways, East Germany, which of course was a brutal communist dictatorship, was actually more progressive on queer issues than democratic West Germany. And there are sort of two phases almost that I look at. There's the period of the 1950s and 1960s when male homosexuality was still criminalized in both East and West Germany. And in that period, uh, West Germany was actually much more brutal in its persecution of gay men than East Germany was. In those 20 years, you have over 50,000 men convicted under paragraphs 175 and 175A, which were the laws that criminalized gay male behavior. Uh, So over 50,000 in West Germany. We don't have precise figures for East Germany, but it's somewhere in the order of a few thousand for the same time period. So it's far, far less. So in that sense, East Germany is actually a much more tolerant place. Now, it still wasn't great, of course. You're still living in this brutal communist regime, but that was quite surprising to find. The, if anything, more surprising part was what happens in the 1970s and 1980s. In the 1970s, you have this radical gay movement that bursts forth in West Germany and that totally reshapes queerness, queer politics, queer life in the Federal Republic. And you have an attempt to do something similar in the 1970s in East Berlin. But in the 80s, you have new groups of activists that start organizing under the umbrella of the Protestant church, which is also quite surprising, right? We tend to think of religion as being opposed to any sort of queerness. But these groups start meeting under the umbrella of the Protestant church. And essentially, the regime becomes so terrified of their potentially oppositional nature and the sort of danger that they might pose to the power of the Socialist Unity Party, that they start giving in to their demands, to their policy requests. And so in the mid to late 80s, what I found is just this deluge of pro-gay policy from equalizing the age of consent to um, promulgating a policy to allow openly gay people to serve in the military, allowing or encouraging queer people to come and use the marriage and sexual health counseling centers around the country, commissioning a book on homosexuality, greenlighting the first feature film on sort of gay topics coming out, which strangely enough premiered on November 9th, 1989, the day that the wall was breached. Which is interesting because you think what direction things might have gone in if the wall hadn't fallen that day. Exactly. And in my book, that's sort of one of the concluding thoughts that I have is, okay, what might this have looked like if things had continued? It's not at all clear. It is the case, though, that by 1990, when Germany reunified, at least politicians from the eastern states were much more amenable to sort of queer-friendly policy than their counterparts in the West. For four years, between 1990 and 1994, you actually had two different laws applying in Germany, depending on whether you were in the former East or the former West. And it wasn't until 1994 that the Bundestag actually reconciled those and finally abolished paragraph 175 as a direct result of East Germany's sort of more progressive lawmaking. Hmm. Let's talk about the transatlantic connection now. If we compare LGBTQ rights in the U.S. versus in Germany, 
Are there certain topics where you'd say there has been progress versus areas where we're seeing stagnation? Obviously, both the U.S. and Germany are today considered broadly to be sort of friendly places for LGBTQ people. But I think that that designation can obscure a lot. And this is something that scholars who especially study queerness today really emphasize. I think one place where we see a lot more ambiguity and lack of progress in both countries is on trans issues. Um, So obviously in the U.S., because of our sort of unique federal system, Obviously, Germany also has a federal system, but the U.S. really devolves a lot of powers to the states and to localities even. And uh, so trans people have to deal with a sort of patchwork of regulations and laws at the local, state, and federal levels that don't all necessarily agree. In Germany, I know, which again ostensibly has more progressive lawmaking on this issue, uh, trans activists have been calling for an overhaul of the legislation that allows them to change their names and so forth because it it only allows them to do so after a fairly lengthy and invasive legal proceeding. One other quick thing that I'll mention is um, the issue of pinkwashing in both countries. So the, the idea of politicians using their ostensibly pro-gay views as a way of making other less progressive views more palatable, in particular xenophobia and oftentimes Islamophobia. In a recent Washington Post article, you talked about the drawbacks of a U.S.-centric understanding of pride in Germany. And as you pointed out, it's even seen in the name of the flagship parade, the Christopher Street Day Parade. Why do you think it is that Germany's queer history has been overshadowed in some sense by the U.S.'s history? I do think that Germany is not unique in this regard. I think that many countries, many queer minorities around the world tend to measure their own success by these U.S.-centric yardsticks, right? We talk about Stonewall both as a specific moment in time, a specific event in 1969, but also as almost, we we ask if other countries have had a Stonewall moment yet. Um, And so I think that, as you alluded to, that can obscure a lot more than it explains I do think the reason that we have this has a lot to do with the hegemony that the U.S. exercised in Western Europe and around the world after World War II. So obviously the American sort of narrative of queer history has these specific milestones of, um, you know, say the Lavender Scare in the 1950s when gay federal employees were being purged from their jobs, to the Stonewall uprisings, to the AIDS crisis, and now sort of marriage equality. And my research into both the East and West German gay and lesbian movements shows that, in fact, they have their own trajectories that are quite distinct from what was going on in the U.S. Obviously, as I've sort of alluded to, in East Germany, this is a communist dictatorship that has a successful gay movement. It's completely different from what's going on in the U.S. And it it totally sort of turns upside down our assumption that the success of gay activism is somehow linked to either capitalism or liberal democracy. That's really interesting. Over the past two months, especially, there's been a number of stories that have really put LGBTQ rights in the spotlight. And one was the controversy during the European Football Championship, where the UEFA refused to light the Munich soccer stadium in rainbow colors, which had been called for by people who were outraged by Hungary's recent anti-LGBTQ legislation. And 
after we saw, you know, as we often see during these times, a wave of corporations and politicians in Germany sporting rainbow flags and symbolism. But what does this actually mean? I mean, how do you view that? So as you pointed out, we see this sort of rainbow washing of corporate logos in June every year during Pride Month. What numerous activists and scholars have pointed out is that the corporations who, you know, sport a rainbow for June oftentimes don't have pro-LGBTQ policies for their own employees and oftentimes pursue policies and politics that are hugely detrimental to queer people. Um, So in the U.S., many of these corporations give huge amounts of money to uh, the Chamber of Commerce or to the Republican Party, which of course has a profoundly homophobic and transphobic party platform. I think it really is an example of corporations trying to brand themselves as being queer friendly to sort of cash in on that while not actually doing anything to change their own policies or their politics. I think this comes again from the way that we have in the last 10 or 20 years really linked the idea of progress and of liberal democracy with queer rights and that it's almost become a litmus test. And I don't know that that has been actually helpful for queer people. I think it's been helpful for a certain set of queer people, in particular white gay men who already have a lot of privilege. But I don't know that that linking has actually done much to advance queer politics or queer sort of um, policy priorities. Sam Hunicke is a historian of modern Germany. His first book, States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany, will come out next year. Thank you so much for joining me, Sam. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM out of West Haven. You're listening to Tearing Down Walls on Sunshine Live. This show connects young people on both sides of the Atlantic to talk about issues that matter. And I'm so excited to welcome our next two guests onto the program. Joining me from Berlin is Felicia Rolechki, a Berlin-based trans activist who facilitates educational workshops on trans issues. Welcome, Felicia. Hi. And joining us is Kalik Crowder, an alum from the University of New Haven in Connecticut and former DJ with our partner radio station there, WNHU. Thanks for being here. Hello. It is great to have you both. Kalik, let's start with you. Upon graduating last fall, you landed a job as a community curator for Snapchat. Do you feel there is something missing when it comes to communicating LGBTQ topics in the U.S.? I think that... LGBT issues, you know, are hit different in different cultures. I think that there is a lack of, you know, nuance. We're still learning a lot of new things like, you know, non-binary and genderqueer. I also think there's just a lack of empathy. You know, sometimes it feels like there are certain politicians, you know, this, this kind of push to kind of keep this kind of rigid, archaic gender roles, even in 2021. So I, w- I would say that's a, you know, big disconnect. Going off of what Kalik said, Felicia, what would you say in terms of Germany's progress? I mean, for example, in the U.S., it's become increasingly common for people to put their pronouns in their email signatures or on social media. Do you think that there is increasing acceptance here as well? Um, When we think of like having pronouns in your email signatures and stuff like that, it's something that's definitely more and more common in Germany. We have a very large discussion on on the degendering of language that is currently like very present in the in, in the mainstream discourse, 
because German in itself is a very gendered language and the discussion to reduce that and the way we speak every day is like very present and very up to date. So I do see some progress there. I consider it to be a bit slower than what we see in the US and a bit less volatile at times. So, Kalik, you wrote an essay last summer for NBC Think where you talked about how you had to do twice as much as other people. And there was one line that really stuck out with me. You said, quote, I not only have Asperger's, but I'm also African-American, openly gay and plus size in a society designed to privilege white people, heterosexual people and thinner people. And you talked about the need to code switch. Can you explain what you mean by that? Um, code switching is basically like making yourself palatable to other people, you know, when you're in spaces with other people who have more privilege than you or um, it's a way to survive. And code switching is just universal, like how I talk with my mom is different from when I talk to my friends or how I talk to my professors. As black people, we're kind of, we have no choice but to be actors and kind of have to play pretend or be a certain version of themselves to make other people comfortable. So we're not getting fired or reprimanded at school or or things of that nature because, you know, our role isn't, you know, fully embracing of our differences. I, I want to bring you in, Felicia, as well, and talk about your experience facing discrimination. As you know, some parties in the German parliament have been pushing here to reform the so-called transsexual law. Can you describe your experience with this law? Yeah, so the way this this law works at the moment in Germany is that in order to change your legal name and gender marker, you have to go through several consultations with psychologists who write extensive reports and try to determine your gender by personality tests and sometimes even IQ tests and in conversations where you have to lay bare essentially all aspects of your sexuality, of your sexual behaviors and identity to a degree that's just like extremely uncomfortable and not right. And in addition to that, you have to pay all, all of this process. It costs between 500 and 8,000 euros. For me personally, experience was really bad. Had Between these two consultations, one of them was really, really horrible with a person that not just asked a lot of very invasive questions, but then in this report also like consistently misgendered me and wrote things about my life that just weren't true because... She didn't care all that much about writing a correct report and stuff like that. Had a very bad experience. And in the end, that whole process took me like two years. And this law is about four decades old. What do you think of the laws that the Green Party and Free Democrats wanted to replace it with? Um, So these so-called self-ID laws would have been really great. They would have essentially eliminated the entire process and made changing your legal name and gender marker in your passport, something that's based on your self-identification, just where you put forward the information and then this data is changed. And it would be handled the same way many other European countries handle it and would have been a great improvement to this very old and really awful law. And as you mentioned, these reform attempts were unsuccessful so far. But of course, we do have an election coming up in Germany this September. So we'll see what happens. Kalik, coming to you on the other side of the Atlantic, we heard earlier in the program about how the U.S. has this rich LGBTQ history, which is kind of looked to in many parts of the world, including here in Germany. But do you feel that you're also looking outwards at what's happening elsewhere in terms of LGBTQ movements? Um, no, not in particular, because there's so many things, you know, going on in this country, so many things on in my personal life. Um, I mean, I know, for example, like, you know, I went to vacation more. I know that one of the countries that I kind of steer clear of is Jamaica. 
They have, um, you know, anti, very colonial anti-LGBTQ laws, and this is still very much taboo, even in 2021. And, you know, my kind of focus or is, is hoping that there'll really be full liberation um, for LGBTQ people, particularly in the Black community, just because it's kind of like, yeah, I would say America's progressive in it, but it's like, in some communities, it's still kind of a kind of a slow, you know, progress. I mean, rights, obviously, there's rights, but, you know, in terms of like, you know, social acceptance of people who are queer. And Felicia, as part of your work as an educator, you release these incredibly informative guides on your Instagram at Transformational Tomorrow. One in particular I wanted to highlight is about trans representation in TV and film, which you say is often problematic. Can you explain how so? Yeah, I feel like much of the trans representation we see in media is like misery representation, where the entire piece of representation is like, oh my God, you see the trans person, they're miserable in life and everything is horrible and they're unlovable and everything. And genuinely good representation shows trans people with agency, with lives of their own that are beyond them just being trans, with active personality traits that go, they go beyond that. And that representation is quite rare, especially like in most movies we see that touch on trans topics forms of representation is really, really poor. And Kalik, do you feel like you see yourself represented in media or is there still a long way to go there? I think we have a long way to go, but I think that there has been starting to be representation for, you know, Black gay men. Um, and I'm loving it. And not just Black gay men, Black trans women. You know, we have shows like Pose, which Pose is so groundbreaking. It breaks my heart that the show, you know, is coming to a close. And then even before that, you had Empire, you know, which had a Black gay character in it, who was the main character. Um, and even before there was YouTube. And what I would love about YouTube is that if you couldn't ha- get the representation on television and movies because there are gatekeepers, you had it on YouTube where you can publish your own stuff. So there was, you know, influences you could see like, oh my God, like he's just like me. The worst thing about being a marginalized person is that people don't see the human in you, you know, so. <laughs> and Kalik, your goal one day is to create a scholarship program for Black LGBTQ students at your alma mater, the University of New Haven. Can you expand on that vision? You know, scholarship is just, you know, I want to be able to, people have helped me, you know, get through school. I want to be able to kind of return the favor and extend that offer to other people as well. And I'm hoping that, you know, in a few years that UNH does become, at least the minority part, the by part of UNH becomes more inclusive and welcoming and nurturing for students who are Black LGBTQ. And Felicia, you've hosted 140 workshops to educate audiences on trans issues. What's next for you? Like at the moment, I'm starting to reach that threshold of workshops and seminars that I just can't do on my own anymore. So like the big thing for me in the upcoming years will be to start a small program um, to teach trans people to do these educations, to do these seminars and workshops. I love teaching people how to use emotional storytelling and how to get a hold and get control of our own story and use our own story on our own terms. Felicia Rolechki is a trans activist based in Berlin, and Kalik Crowder is an alum from the University of New Haven in Connecticut. Thank you to you both for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the second edition of Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Müller-Kroll. See you next time.